Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Hangout in the Holy Land, Land Grant's flagship podcast. I am Josh Dooley, and with me, as always, he is the Rosewood to my Axel Foley, the one, the only, Chuck Holmes. We are recording on another beautiful Sunday morning, and Chuck, we're not going to do weather hour like we've done in episodes past, but it's a hell of a November Sunday. I got to be honest with you. I mean, it's skies are clear. It's like 50 degrees. I was able to mow my grass yesterday so yeah man how you feeling over there i'm a lot better now that you got a beverly hills cop reference in and i I want to apologize for all of our listeners under 40 they probably don't know what we're talking about but it's a hell of a movie you guys should go watch uh you will enjoy you will laugh your ass off it's a great performance by eddie murphy see i don't know man like i think if, if kids are in college right now Maybe they don't know Beverly Hills Cop, but like, it's an absolute banger. It's a classic. I could make an argument that two is nearly as good, if not better. So it's not just that though. If you're not, if you're not up on early Eddie Murphy, do yourself a favor. Like, no good stuff is coming out right now. There's no good movies. There's no good streaming options. You can just start what like. 85 and run it through 95 something like that and probably catch 8 9 10 fantastic Eddie Murphy Eddie Murphy movies and if you have some thick skin go watch a couple of his stand up specials and you will howl laughing now if you're a little sensitive he is not the comic for you to listen to but if you want to go listen to Eddie Murphy raw holy smokes does he tear the house down? Absolutely. And, we, you know, we're here to talk about primarily Ohio State football. But after yesterday, like, we could probably do 30 minutes on Eddie Murphy and then a quick recap at the end <laughs> of what happened in Piscataway. Spoiler alert, not the greatest performance in the world, but we'll get to that. Unfortunately, first. Uh, for me, it's unfortunate for me, I have to sort of offer up a, a mea culpa of sorts. I have a confession to make. Chuck, on our preview podcast for this Ohio State Rutgers game, I severely undersold the slate of college football this weekend. You know, I was like, eh, nothing too impressive. Make sure you're around for the night games. Catch some of LSU, Bama, USC, Washington. Yesterday had several great football games. You know, I I couldn't watch Texas because I didn't want to do the dual screen thing. 
the Texas-Kansas State was a great noon game. Georgia had their hands full at 3.30. Um, Ole Miss-Texas A&M, I tried to watch a little bit of that. Ole Miss pulled it out at the end. And then you had the night games, right? Washington and USC up and down the field. Not a stop in sight. No defense in sight. 52-42. Yeah, 52-42 was the final. And then... I want to be respectful enough here. Alabama is the best kind of cockroach. Like, they just... They don't die. They're so well coached. They... Honestly might look like shit for an entire month especially early in the season but they always figure it out they it's something about Nick Saban and his program and I give most of the credit to him I'd give a lot of credit to their defensive coordinators uh, and that sort of team I'm still not overly impressed with Tommy Reese as their offensive coordinator I think it's more just hey Jalen Milrow go play football but they looked great Chuck, I rattled off like five, six games. I don't know that I missed any. What were you watching yesterday? What did you, what or who did you find impressive? And if you want to rub it in, how badly did I undersell this slate of college football games? I'm not going to rub it in because I agreed with you going in, but it, it turned out to be something that was enjoyable to watch. I, I'll be honest, I was pretty impressed with Missouri. I know they lost, but. Georgia's Georgia, and they had a chance to take the lead with like eight minutes to go. They had the ball. Didn't make it happen. Georgia goes down and scores one more time, so they end up sealing it. But they played with them for three and a half quarters, like legit put a scare in Georgia that Georgia hasn't felt since Ohio State. That one was impressive. The night games, it was fun to flip back and forth between them. Because, because you saw though, a score every single time? <laughs> every single time. I Even though Alabama and LSU was 42-28, to 28, it just didn't feel the same as the Washington-USC game. The Washington-USC game until the fourth quarter. I think going into the fourth quarter, each team had had one stop, I think is what it amounted to. The fumble, I think Washington had one punt, and I think USC had the fumble by Caleb Williams. And then Penix had the pick, and that kind of started it. That was late third. Uh, They had a chance to go up two scores, and he had that pick. And then all of a sudden, they kind of buckled down defensively after that next touchdown, which was kind of crazy to get a couple stops there. But it it was fun to watch, and it was kind of like a palate cleanser. After and and I look, I get it. We're we're spoiled fans here, but it was kind of a palate cleanser after the most uninspiring 19-point victory we could have watched at uh, noon. That's fair. And, you know, I'm not – I have respect for Alabama, not so much Brian Kelly. Like, I'll be completely honest with you. But LSU-Bama at night, like, that's something different. It it just is. I – I don't particularly enjoy watching those SEC teams because I've just I've built up calluses and I have sort of this natural hatred um, for that conference. But you get a big game like that 
at night in Tuscaloosa. That was a really fun atmosphere as well. So that was the one that I probably watched the most of until it was over. And then I was like, oh, let's see first to 100 at the Rose Bowl. But a lot of good games yesterday. I'm sure we're probably missing not good games. Chuck, I gotta, I'll pull these up real quick. Let's just talk about how hilarious the Big Ten and the Big Ten West is slash R. We've bashed Iowa, right? They've announced a hey, offensive coordinator, Brian Ferentz, isn't coming back. We tried to give Wisconsin some credit. Hey, keep an eye on them. Nebraska actually controlled their own destiny going in to this past weekend. Wisconsin and Nebraska lost to Indiana and Michigan State, two teams that earned their first Big Ten Conference victory, while Iowa squeaked one out 10-7 at Wrigley Field. Oh, and Minnesota lost. The Big Ten West has got to be the worst collection of football teams, at least Power 5 divisions, that I've ever, ever seen. I mean, second place is going to be a 5-4 and four team that is 3-3 three and three in conference. How bad is this Big Ten West? Is it the worst that you can remember ever or in recent memory? Like, I'll open it up. It is, there's a shot, and I haven't gone through the entire schedule to see it, but there's a shot that they finish as a whole below 500, not only in conference, but overall, because then uh, a few of them had shit out of conference records, like Nebraska did, Northwestern, I think, lost one, uh, Minnesota. So these guys have a chance to legit finish below 500 as a collective unit, and that is like mind-blowingly terrible. I just I can't stress it enough. I was going to win the Big Ten West. Yep. They're going to be in the Big Ten title game, which is it's a good thing for whoever ends up there. It looks like it's going to be Michigan or Ohio State at this point would be my guess that they're not going to need any like style points or they're not going to need to jump anybody to make the playoff. Because that game's not going to offer them anything. The 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 committee is going to look at oh you beat eight and four Iowa who scored a hundred and ninety two points this year uh, forty eight to six great job way to handle business and you don't get anything for that so it's bad I'm glad it's gone I'm not going to uh, I can't believe they made me actually long for the days of the legends and leaders divisions. And I'm happy that the big 10 with their uh, additions won't be East and West anymore to have to deal with this crap. The funniest thing ever is going to be if, and when Iowa ends up in the big 10 title game and puts up 38 and Brian Ferentz's like swan song <laughs> or something. Uh, hopefully that's not against Ohio state, but it would, <laughs> It would be the world's funniest outcome. I, I agree with you. I think it's awful. And I don't see... I mean, look, I, I have faith in Luke Fickle as a football coach. But I said there was a realistic chance that they 
went 12 and 0. Like they're scared, you know, 11 and 1, something like that. Their schedule, even on paper coming in, was not good. And I know that they struggled, or they have struggled with injuries, but maybe Phil Longo is not it. You know, they, for X number of games, they had Tanner Mordecai, and they had a healthy Braylon Allen, and they had a healthy Chaz Malusi. Like, I know that they're struggling now with those guys being out, but Wisconsin at 5-4, and four, that's a subpar season. For what they started with, what they were given, and who they were going to play, it's a subpar season. And then you bring in... At least two teams that we watched put up a thousand points last night. Well, hell, Oregon damn near put up a thousand points in their game. Granted, it was against an inferior opponent, but you're going to bring these big, these former Pac 12 teams in. And I just don't know where the path is for those teams that did belong in the Big Ten West. I think you're going to end with end up with more of the same. They're just not going to be in divisions. But you're going to have a clear first class, maybe a clear second class, and then all the rest of the teams. And I think that's a bummer. I think that that's unfortunate. Um, but it, it sort of is what it is. Unless you, until you change your mentality a little bit, and get some creative minds as part of your coaching staff and try to step up your recruiting, which I, I think Wisconsin can do to a certain extent. I don't know, man. It's going to be rough. It's not, And it's not an enticing brand of football. I don't think that high school kids watch Iowa football and think, man, that, that looks so fun. I want to be a part of that. Look at Caden Proctor, right? Like, Arguably the best offensive tackle in the country, and he's like, I'm good. I'm going to go to Bama, and granted, he started as a true freshman. He's starting as a true freshman, but Xavier Nwangpa stayed. But, like, you're not a hotbed, and I don't think people want to go there. Same thing for Wisconsin. Same thing for uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Nebraska. Nebraska's not coming back. Chuck, I'll sit here and look at you on the Zoom camera right now, and I will tell you Nebraska's not coming back. Matt Rule might make them an 8-9 win team. That's the best that they're going to be. I just If you're 7th most attractive in the Big Ten, who wants to go and join that? When at least you know the ACC or the SEC's got crazy eyes on it, and it's still this ESPN-pushed product, that's going to continue to be the case. If you want to go and play in the... Big Ten, there are much better options that, you know, geographically and everything, they have the same appeal, or you can go out to the West Coast and still be in the Big Ten. So I think that the class divide will continue to be a thing, but that's just sort of a separate tangent. Would you agree with that, though, that the rich are going to get richer and the poor will continue to at least stay poor, specifically in the Big Ten? Yeah, I don't know how they change it. This is strictly, I, I guess if you, the one thing they can do is with this extra money, Pay is you can pour that into resources and recruiting and NIL, and that can help you. Because let's be honest, that's the stuff that, that, that the kids want to see. Uh, can you pay them a little bit? Do you have a cool uh, locker room? 
Do you have a lounge that everybody likes to be at? So that part of it can be. I'm glad you brought that up. You see this stuff on TV and in the media, right, about these insane facilities that like all of the SEC programs have, and Ohio State's got it, and Michigan has it to a certain extent, and you know that those Pac-12 teams are probably going to... Can you imagine, like, an attraction at Minnesota? Like, maybe they have great facilities, and maybe I'm wrong, but can you imagine world-class facilities at Minnesota or even Wisconsin with Fickle? And I know they can support both football and basketball, and they've got some um, you know, women's teams and everything that are moderately successful. I just I don't see that happening, but to your point, I think that's what it would or will take. The the part of it, the money is just so silly with these TV deals, though. I mean, when you're getting 70, 80, 100 million dollars off of just television, you have to spend that somewhere. These guys let this money burn. They they it just burns holes in their pockets. They can't possibly run a surplus, so they spend it as quick as they get it. They're like my seven-year-old. My man gets a Target gift card for a birthday, and we're at Target four hours later. He can't possibly wait another second to spend this money. And this is how ADs and their departments act. They act like seven-year-olds who got money for the first time, and they have to go build something to show for it. It's like a uh, the old. they're just out there. They're all swinging them and seeing who's got the bigger one. Meanwhile, all the big boys, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, LSU, they're pulling a Milton Berle, and they're only showing enough to win. They don't even need to pull the whole thing out. (laughs) I feel like we've had a half a dozen Milton Berle references, and you want to talk about Beverly Hills Cop being dated. The Milton Berle references are from like a century ago at this point, but if you don't know, you know, you should know. It's funny. But... Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's going to be tough, but who knows? Maybe we're proven wrong. You see, you know, if, gosh, if Louisville can make a run in the ACC, then why can't some of these other teams make a run in the Big Ten? Before we get to Ohio State, Chuck, I'll put you on the spot ever so briefly. I didn't uh, mention this before we jumped on and started recording. Give me your top four for the next college football playoff rankings. I know we'll discuss Ohio State, but I think it's going to change. I think it should change. Give me your thoughts on the next top four reveal. I actually don't think it changes at all. Really? Okay. No. How how could you justify last week? Rutgers being Michigan's best win and then ding Ohio State for beating Rutgers by three touch or three scores on the road. I just I don't I now we we watched it so we understand but I just don't I don't see how they can they can fault them yet. Now it could happen and I I think they're banking on to me this this just feels like Ohio State and Michigan are going to be where they are and when they play the loser will drop out is how it feels to me. And that's why I think the committee can change one through four if they want. Because A, it's the last year of the, t- the top four. And B, I think that they know 
the four teams that make it to the college football playoff, like it's almost guaranteed three of them are going to be undefeated. But it's probably going to take four. It might take being undefeated to make it. So, excuse me, they can look at the their top four now and just say, hey, it's going to be some collection of these four. We'll move them around based on how we feel that week. I think Georgia gets a bump because they finally beat a ranked team or played a team with a pulse. I know that they whooped up on Kentucky a few weeks ago. Kentucky's just not there yet. I think Missouri posed a little bit more of a threat, and obviously that game went into the fourth quarter before it was decided. So I think they get a bump, and then maybe the rest stay where they're at. I I don't think Michigan, I don't think the impression of them changes. They blew out Purdue. Okay, that's fine. Purdue's an awful football team. Nobody's going to know anything about Michigan until they play Penn State. Those are just facts. And Florida State, I don't know. Like They're a top four team to me just because they can play both sides. And Washington is an offensive juggernaut, but they don't play defense. So I think those are the five teams that need to fit into four spots and the committee can do whatever they want. But Chuck, let's go ahead and hit our break now. Let's collect our thoughts. I know we've got several of them. Get you paid, paid some bills, and come back and talk Ohio State. How's that sound? Oh, I got some thoughts collected. Let's do it. I'm sure that you do. All right, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, everybody, to Hangout in the Holy Land, Land Grant's flagship podcast for Chuck Holmes. I am Josh Dooley, and we have arrived at our post-game recap review sort of portion of the the Sunday podcast, and a lot of things to get to. Ohio State pulls out a 35-16 victory in Piscataway, New Jersey. Over the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. The final score looks okay. That's a cover. Good teams win. Great teams cover. But I think my sort of my big thought or my impression of this game is that good good teams win. Great teams usually don't trail Rutgers 9-7 to at halftime. That's sort of where I'm at. Ohio State goes three and out to start the game, scores on their second drive, and then really can't mount any sort of offense throughout the rest of the first half. Rutgers played ball control. They were sort of that boa constrictor, right? They just wanted to squeeze the life out of the clock, squeeze the clock out of Ohio, or squeeze the life out of Ohio State, and in particular their defense. Kyle McCord was not sharp. He didn't get a ton of help, at least in the first half, but that's that's on everyone involved. And it just looked bad, man. Um, I think that Rutgers was conservative. When they had greater scoring opportunities, specifically in the red zone, give it to them. The fake quarterback sneak was awesome. The fumble ruski, but they were conservative. I think they could have gone for the jugular, had a a bigger halftime lead. 
So let's break it up, Chuck. We're going to get to the position groups and the players and everyone involved, but let's break the game up this week. How were you feeling at halftime yesterday? What did you think of the first half of the Buckeyes, of Kyle McCord and all involved after 30 minutes of that game? Boy, that first half might have been the worst first half I've seen Ohio State play in a long time. And it was it was really alarming at how uh, uncomfortable Kyle McCord looked to start the game. And it was really alarming how unprepared they looked to start the game offensively. It was and, and we've talked about the ability to make halftime adjustments. But it looked like they had not watched any Rutgers film. Nothing Rutgers did defensively was new. I knew they pulled a few things out offensively because they knew that's where they were at the disadvantage. The fumble ruski had me howling that it was a, a something that they pulled off. I loved watching it. But for them to come out, go three and out, they forced a three and out, and then the bad punt really set them up with that touchdown. I know they went 54 yards, but Rutgers having the bad snap and Ohio State almost blocking it led to that one. And then they didn't do anything else. The rest of the half was it was just awful. It, it, it was it was really bad. The pick McCord threw was terrible. He for whatever reason, now has a point where he just he's not looking through progressions at all. So he's not he's only forcing it to Harrison when he's his first option. But then when he's not his first option and he's open, those announcers were terrible yesterday. And even they noticed that he missed Harrison a couple times wide open, but then he throws into triple coverage like that interception he was literally bracketed by on all four sides by the sideline a safety a corner and a linebacker and he still threw it right to him I just it, it was it was like Kyle McCord uh took the snap and said this is going to Harrison no matter what he closed his eyes and threw it and stuff like that is going to get you just annihilated versus good team so his sort of um, regression yesterday even more, and I get it. He's compromised physically, and I feel like that that has caused him to um, be compromised mentally because I my guess is he's thinking about the ankle, and he doesn't have the luxury of every other position group at Ohio State when he gets hurt to take a month off like we do with cornerbacks and safeties and wide receivers and running backs. He doesn't have that because, frankly, he's he's it. And we can argue whether he's good enough or not, but he's the only option. Uh, Devin Brown has shown what he is. Uh, Kineholtz is not ready. There's just no way he's ready to lead this team to a national championship. So McCord's what they got. But that first half performance by him is will you will walk out of uh, the big house at halftime down twenty to twenty five points if that's the performance he gives in three weeks. You might be right on the latter point. I think that 
it might be regression. I'm not going to sit here and pound the table and say otherwise. I would call it plateauing. Like he hasn't he hasn't continued to progress in my opinion. It's more of a plateau, but like I said, I'm not going to sit here and take a ton of umbrage with what you have to say on this point at least. But it's inconsistency and it's it's the slow start. You look at his first half and second half splits, they're a world apart. Like he even if the throws aren't electric throws yesterday, like yesterday though. He was like 10 of 15 for on paper his first and second halves is are just wildly different. Yeah. Yes, for those that watch yesterday, yesterday's second half wasn't any better. If he doesn't throw it four yards to Travion and Travion outruns the entire off of the defense for 60 more, that it's a it's the same exact stat line. Like none of these guys he had two guys average more than seven yards a catch. And one of them was Henderson because he had that long pass. And then the other was Tate who caught two balls. So yesterday wasn't a step up. Yesterday's step up was they finally took the damn ball out of his hands and pounded it down their throats like they should have from. Like, I just don't understand. And he even brought it up during the press conference. Ryan Day mentioned, yeah, we saw we we looked at halftime and saw that they were in too high the whole first half. How do you not see that before halftime? Why is that not something that's being brought up? And and part of the challenge here is, is his offensive coordinator isn't the offensive coordinator. Twice they showed Heartline in between plays. When in between plays are when you should be communicating the most. Like as a coach, you're talking most between plays. He had his damn mic pushed up in between plays. He wasn't even a part of the conversation. We had the ball and he was not a part of the conversation. That's something that when you have a head coach, that's a play caller, he's not going to be able to diagnose the defense during the play. But what is Brian Hartline doing during these plays? And when we're on defense that he can't look at, I know they have iPads or they have pictures or whatever the hell they have how does that take till halftime to recognize that they're sitting in too high what the hell is the rest of the coaching staff doing that that isn't something that they recognized after the first probably two possessions i get it the first possession was three and out okay the second one they went six plays for 54 yards so you got nine plays here and i would venture to say they were too high all nine they just got lucky. McCord threw the best ball he threw all day to G. Scott, and G. Scott caught the best ball he's ever caught as his, in his Ohio State career to kind of uh, alleviate that and, and kind of go around it. But the fact that they didn't recognize it until halftime and then make the change is just – it's mind-blowingly unacceptable for a coaching staff that is one of the highest paid in college football. And I don't know what – changes they were and weren't making i'll be honest i don't know if rutgers typically plays that too high style but you're right like they were obviously going to and that's what they were going to run for the entire first half where i where my frustration sort of starts to set in or and maybe i'm defending kyle mccord more than i should but i'll say yesterday like they didn't win because of him yesterday, and they have rarely won because of him. I, I have accepted the fact that he is a game manager, and in my opinion, he still has 
the potential to be a high-end game manager. But he's not a razor. He's not a seal, a ceiling or floor razor. I, I've made peace with that. But I think they've got to do something else to try and help him out. And I know that you and I texted about this yesterday. I think back to when Ohio State had success with Dwayne Haskins and how they used Dwayne Haskins. I think that Haskins and McCord are very similar. Not in every aspect, but Dwayne Haskins, he made his money just finding guys in space all over the middle of the field. Now, he had a cannon. He could throw the ball deep as well, but it was it was mesh. It was crossers. It was slants, and guys getting open underneath and just making plays. He used a lot of the middle of the field, and what's concerning is it wasn't just Wayne Haskins. Um, Justin Fields, deep middle of the field, loved it. C.J. Stroud would dice up opposing defenses deep middle of the field. Kyle McCord's not doing that. It's deep sideline, deep boundary, or it's run after the catch very, very shallow. We've seen some of Marvin Harrison's touchdowns in recent weeks, right? They've come off crossers. There are three, four, five-yard throws that he is then taking deep. And it's like... Emeka Ibuka's right there. He's right there. He seems healthy now. He's, even in this loaded class, one of the top six, seven, eight wide receivers in college football. And they're using him like freaking Julian Edelman or something. Like, hey, five-yard hook, turn around. They're just, they haven't figured out what makes Kyle McCord best. And then on top of that, you've got some drops. Um, Julian Fleming, who I'm ready to move past, had a drop on a key play. G. Scott Jr. had a drop on a D play. The G. Scott Jr. play, though, I really need to know why he was your deep middle target, why he was your guy, why he was running that route when you've got Marvin Harrison Jr. and a Mecca. It's like they try to keep... Marvin Harrison Jr. outside of the hashes 80% of the time, 80% of his routes, he's a, a freaking transformer. Like, just run him over the middle. Unless you're scared that he's going to get hurt. But he can make a killing over the middle. And doubly so for Igmeka Igbuka, it's like they can't figure out the Kyle McCord piece of that. And so I think that that is also hurting his progression or lack thereof saying, but I think part of the reason they can't figure it out is, and I told you, I said this yesterday to you and you went silent. So I know you didn't agree. The arm talent is not there. He does not have the arm that Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields or CJ Stroud had him being a five-star and one of the top quarterbacks in his class is a complete miss by recruiting services because he does that. You cannot be a five-star and have the arm that he does. I disagree. Flat out. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the big arm. He doesn't have, he, he cannot drive the ball like these other guys could drive the ball down the field. He just thought he can't. It's not there. You don't see the zip on the passes that you saw. If anything, 
Like there was times where CJ Stroud and Justin Fields and Dwayne Haskins almost threw it through guys. You've never seen a guy drop a pass or like, ooh, that was a little hot. It it hasn't happened yet because he doesn't have that. I would argue that he doesn't have the touch that those guys had. When it comes to arm strength, look, CJ Stroud does not have a howitzer. He's got a pretty good arm. He does not have an elite arm. Um Cardale Jones had more zip on it. Dwayne Haskins, I would say, had a howitzer for an arm. Kyle McCord's issue is touch, in my opinion, because like the seam, the well, seam but that's throw. Arm talent. Yeah, I, I agree with I'm you there. About it. it's not just that he doesn't have the big arm; he doesn't have the arm to make the throws. And you don't have to have the biggest arm to be able to throw down the middle of the field, but you've got to be able to hit. Your, and they have no confidence that he can hit his spot on a consistent basis when they throw jump balls it's to the outside so that it's only one defender that can go get it because they don't trust that he's going to throw the damn ball down the seam and not have five guys go after it that are going to try to intercept the ball because he's going to make the wrong decision on top of it and that's where he has to earn the trust and prove them wrong because i think about the ball down the seam to mecca Ibuka against notre dame like that's an elite throw and i know it's just one he's probably missed several others just like that but he has to be willing to commit to that throw and make it because we've seen that he can't he's just not and there's a big difference there and so I think we're we're sort of arguing about the same thing but yeah they even if Kyle McCord is limited you called him Craig Krenzel I disagree with that even if he's Craig Krenzel though you've got at least two of the best wide receivers in the country on the field Figure it out. Get them the ball. And if it's Krenzel distributing, so be it. You've got to be able to work around that. But that's just the first half, right? We we haven't gotten to the second half. I think we should do that and then get into the players and whatnot. It was an ugly first half. Credit to the defense for at least standing up in the red zone. They limited Rutgers to three field goals in the first half. I do think that Greg Schiano could have been a tad bit more aggressive. But at the same time, it's like, if our defense is playing well, I might not have to win a shootout so I can take points. I'm not going to fault Greg Schiano, although I do think that he could have been more aggressive. But it's 9-7, to seven, and what's really telling about Ryan Day's confidence or lack thereof is the end of the first half. Granted, Rutgers had the ball. There was no guarantee that Ohio State got it back. But Ryan Day wasn't taking timeouts. He wasn't like, hey, we have to burn him to get the ball back. He was like, I'd like to get into the locker room now. I'd like to go inside, please, and recollect my thoughts and regroup. So that's telling. That is concerning. It's frustrating. It's all of the above. But... Ohio State gets to the locker room. They come out. It's still not great until Jordan Hancock makes a big play. And credit to Josh Proctor as well. He tips the ball or breaks up the pass. Jordan Hancock grabs it out of the air, 93 yards for a pick six. And then Ohio State at least starts to find momentum a little bit. They lean on Travion Henderson a lot in the second half. He looked fantastic. The offensive line looked 
Not going to say fantastic. I had you go in there. They looked better against a Rutgers defense that I think deserves some credit, honestly. Um, and then they got in the red zone. Kyle McCord can throw a good ball in the red zone. Maybe it's because he's known Marvin Harrison for a decade now, Marvin Harrison Jr. for a decade now. He knows how to throw the jump ball, the back shoulder, finds him for a couple of touchdowns, and it looks like a 19-point victory. Or it is a 19-point victory that looks better than it was. So let's get into these position groups, and we'll maybe hit on the Rutgers piece of it as well. McCord yesterday, 19 for 26, 189 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, 80 for his QBR. All very generous. Like, he did not play that well. But I will, again, I'll give him some of the, not the credit. I'll, I'll make a light defense. He had three drops in the first half. It was Fleming. It was G. Scott Jr. And Marvin Harrison Jr., it wasn't a drop in the end zone. It was a really... It was a really good play by the cornerback to knock the ball out of his hands in the end zone. There's a world in which Kyle McCord's 22 for 26 for, what, 230, 240, and it looks better. He wasn't dreadful yesterday. He was just, like I said, he he's not raising stuff right now. He's not raising stuff. He is game managing. He was dread, He was dreadful yesterday. You, I need okay. you to go back and watch that game. He was terrible, terrible. He was not good at all. He was scared. He was, he was not good. Like I, you and I will obviously. He was not dreadful. His throwing. numbers look great. He, he was not, he did not play winning football as a quarterback in 2023 yesterday. That was not winning football. They don't win that game without Travion Henderson and that defense period. If Henderson is not in that game, if Henderson is hurt and Chip Trainum is the starting quarterback, they lose that football game. If Devin Brown is the quarterback, I don't think it changes anything. And I think Devin Brown stinks as a quarterback when it comes to throwing the football. He was bad. I know his numbers. He didn't throw anything past five yards. He threw five balls the whole game past five yards. He, he brought zero to the table this entire game. And what I am saying is he didn't. He did not play good quarterback. I'm saying he did, he was not dreadful throwing the ball. In my that's opinion, his, that's his position. His position is quarterback. But there's a difference here. That ball to G. Scott Jr. was a fantastic throw. The ones that he put up in the end zone to Marvin Harrison Jr. Those are good throws. You take out the drops. All I'm saying is you take out the drops. His throws look a little bit better. But yes, we are in agreement that he did not run the show well yesterday. He didn't. He looked, to your point, limited physically and mentally. He wasn't progressing the way that he needed to. He wasn't pulling the trigger on certain balls. I'm just saying from that arm talent perspective, he was not bad. But managing the game, which is what I now expect him to do, he was pretty bad. He wasn't good yesterday. So, um, and I'm just, I'm, there's something in me that I still, I think of Chris Broussard, but I'm not going to say it about Ryan Day. Is he? 
I, I don't think that he is what Chris Broussard said and apologized for. You know what I mean? I'm making fun of the viral clip that was completely inappropriate from somebody who's been doing it for a long time. There's a reason that the guy is still in the lineup. I, I do think that Ryan Day believes in his ability to get more out of him. We'll see. It's going to make a world of difference in three weeks. I don't think it's going to matter a whole lot in the, in the next couple, but it's going to make a world of difference in three weeks. Can he get him there? I don't know. I'm a hell of a less a hell of a lot less confident than I was before. On the other side, I I was really frustrated watching Gavin Wimsat because he can't hit the broadside of a barn, but when Rutgers needed it. How easy was it for them to get Christian Dremel open on the slants and the stuff over the middle? They're the like middle school throws that Wimsat was completing. Why can't Ohio State do that for Kyle McCord? When they really needed it, when Rutgers really needed it, it was, you know, hey, spread them out, little slant, little button hook, little something. And Wimsat was able to make like some elementary throws. But for the most part, Ohio State limited his effectiveness and what he was able to do. And what you were talking about just a minute ago, if Rutgers has, uh, gosh, give me a quarterback. I'm not going to say Hudson Card because he sucks. Um, Say Rutgers has a healthy Tanner Mordecai. Theoretically, Rutgers probably wins the game in that situation too. Wimsat's limited. The running game was not credit to Kyle Manongai. He was really good for Rutgers. But on the other side, Travion Henderson stole the show. 22 for 128 on the ground, long of 27. He had a couple longer ones, 10, 12, 15 yards plus. He had the rushing touchdown. And then he led Ohio State in receiving as well. Five receptions for 80 yards, the long of 65. I know the rest didn't go for chunk plays. I want them to continue to use Travion Henderson out of the backfield. He is a good receiver. I know he had a drop uh, a couple weeks ago in the end zone on a really well-thrown ball or a really uh, well-designed play. Travion Henderson can make plays happen all over the field. As long as he's healthy, I think you continue to use him out of the backfield in a receiving capacity. Didn't really see the rest of the guys. Chip Trainum, two for six. Xavier Johnson, one for five. Emeka Buka one for four. Jesse Mirko, one carry for two yards. I think we'll talk about that later. I think we want to hit on that. Um, but Ohio State's run game was Travion Henderson. Travion Henderson was Ohio State's run game. How impressive were you with Hendo yesterday? He's the reason they won the game. He's the there's only one player on that offense that did his job and it was him. And he, he, he's the only one that exceeded expectations. I guess maybe G Scott exceeded him, but that's only because he got to said he normally doesn't play. So without Henderson in that second half and without them like leaning on him, they don't win. And it kind of pissed me off that they gave that second touchdown to, to Harrison because he didn't earn it. Henderson got him down there, and they gave the damn throw to Harrison. And that's to me, that was BS. I think Let he was gassed. The ball. Get the hell out of here. You got three yards left. Let him run the ball. He he was in the game. They didn't pull him out. Yeah, you're he right. He wasn't that tired. 
but he he's offensively he's the only reason they put up any points. Nobody else stat wise did literally anything outside the one G Scott touchdown. The Harrison one was four yards, and I think the other was three. It wasn't like they were long shots. Uh, Abuka didn't do anything. Uh, Xavier Johnson caught one ball. So without Henderson, I, I, I stand by this. Without Henderson and without that pick six, they don't win this football game. There's nobody else on this team that replaces what he does, and they still win the football game. I think there's certainly an argument to be made there. Um, but he looked good. And then, like I said, on the other side, Kyle Manongai showed a lot of toughness, um, showed some burst on the long 45-yard run off the fake fumble. You know, you know what? I'll save it until we get to Ohio State's defense. I think Monongai's performance was a combination of uh, good game plan from Rutgers, strong running by him, and also a defense that had been sort of worn down. But I don't want to take credit from Monongai. I think that he's a really good player. In the passing game, I feel like we could almost skip the the, the entire thing. Um Travion Henderson, like I said, 5 for 80. Carnell Tate, 2 for 31. I'll say this. I know that you agree. Carnell Tate needs to be on the field a lot. I think that at this point, Julian Fleming's role is a wide receiver who can block. And maybe there's a place for that. Other than that, though... Julian Fleming's bringing nothing to the field, really, and Carnell Tate is. And Carnell Tate, in the little bit that we've seen, he's not a bad blocker. So if he's official wide receiver three and Julian Fleming is four or five, like I'm okay with it. I've lived on the island for as long as I possibly can. Fleming's not a special playmaker. He doesn't have special hands. I'm sorry. It sort of is what it is at this point. Ibuka four for twenty nine. Ma- did you see what? Hold on. Did you see what Fleming did when he had that drop? I know he pulled a hammy or grabbed at a hammy. He grabbed at both of them. He grabbed at one, grabbed at the other. Noticed that nobody was paying any attention to him because they're so sick of him dropping the passes, and then he went back to the huddle. He was going to try to fake an injury. <laughs> to get out of that game to blame that for why he dropped the pass and nobody cared. They were they were so over the fact that he had another ball hit his hands that they had already moved on to the next play. Chuck, I'm disappointed in you though because we've golfed enough. You look at the club when you hit a bad shot. And that's why a football player will grab at a hammy, look up then at the look sun. At your hands. Look at Yeah. Look at your Maybe. hands then. They're the problem. Shake it out a little bit, be like, man, I think, yeah, you need to be better there if you're going to. X-ray, I think a bone's broken. If you're going to drop a ball, disguise it a little bit better. I'm with you there. I just with these Ohio State wide receivers, though, and, and maybe they are. I need them. I want them desperately to be in the ears of both. Ryan Day and Brian Hartline asking for the ball, asking for opportunities or offering up the ideas like, hey, coach, I'm seeing this. Let's try that. 
I can get open, I can make these plays, because they're both so special. More so Harrison, but I think uh, Mecca Ibuka is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous guy in the right situations. Like They should be touching the ball for far more than they are, even if Kyle McCord is not on top of his game. I don't care. We hate the screens, right? Well, I've thrown that out the window. Hit them with some screens. Just do something to get the ball into their hands more than you are or more than you have. Because eight total receptions for less than 60 yards, that's just not good enough. I don't care if you're playing quarterback, Chuck. A one-yard crosser at least gets the ball into their hands. A backward screen at least gets the ball into into their hands, Ohio State needs to do that more if they want to ultimately meet their goal. So let's move beyond it. Credit uh, credit to Christian Dremel on the other side, five for sixty nine for Rutgers. Looked like he had no trouble getting open when they really needed him to, but it is what it is. Ohio State's offensive line was good in this game, and not great, but they allowed just one sack and. Actually, they didn't allow it. That was a blitz, and I'm willing to guess, or I'm willing to assume that Travion Henderson went the wrong way, missed the block on that. So the offensive line, not dinged for any sacks, and they opened up a lot of holes for Travion Henderson. I know it becomes easier when you've got a guy with like 4-3, speed, and he's running... Um, with intent, and he's decisive in his decision-making where he wants to go. But Rutgers doesn't allow a ton of points. They've got a lot of experience. They've got a lot of good football players on their defense. And so I think that this was Ohio State's, their offensive line's best game of the year. The guards were were out in space, and they were moving a ton. And I'm going to give Josh Simmons credit for his block on that run from Travion Henderson that he scored the touchdown on. That was his best block of the season. My man stayed on his guy. You texted it to me. He stayed on his guy. He was, he ran him into the end zone. Now he didn't throw him out of the club, but he was in front of him for most of the game or for most of the play. And he ran him all all the way into the end zone. That being said, I saw five different plays that he did not actually touch a single Rutgers player during run plays. I just don't understand how you as an offensive lineman don't touch anybody. There was one play where he literally, it was, I think it was G Scott had come across and had a block and he had his hands on G Scott's back. He was like doing a tush push on a block, but it wasn't the actual guy with the ball. It was, it was mind blowing. That being said, the rest of the offensive line uh, moved. I think part of it, you know, the challenge they've had for most of the season in the run game is getting to the second level, and I think they did a really good job getting to the second level on a few key plays where they were, were able to free him. That being said, I also agree with you that having Travion Henderson back there makes everybody look better. And it just shows how much more talented he is than the other running backs because my man hits the hole and is gone. And he did it multiple times yesterday. Huge key to them winning the game. For sure. And they 
they can't look at this game and be like, hey, we figured it out, right? They need to continue to get better and better and better and better and much better in certain situations, especially like short yardage. Um, the one play where Trayvon Henderson got it by like an inch, right? You need to be able to get something more out of short yardage situations, but they're showing progress and hopefully they're gelling and coming together more and more and they'll be where Ohio State needs them to be in a couple of weeks. On the other side of the ball, um, I I struggle to describe or define the performance from Ohio State's defense in this game. It was not their best performance, and they encountered a Rutgers offense that's limited, right? We talked about Gavin Wimsat. He's not a good thrower of the football. He can run a little bit, and Kyle Manungai sort of gashed them on a number of occasions. The 45-yard gain, though, you take that away, Ohio State still would have given up 100-plus on the ground to Manungai alone. So it wasn't their best performance, but they're down Burke, they're down Ransom, which may not affect the secondary a ton, but what it does affect is Ohio State's ability to bring Lathan Ransom up, to bring Sonny Styles up. So there's a, a trickle-down effect, and it's very real. Up front, I thought Ohio State's defensive, you know, front six, front seven, whatever, they were okay. Um, Tommy Eichenberg was consistently around the ball. He led the team with 12 tackles. Cody Simon, this was a run-oriented game, so he had nine. Sonny Styles was coming down into the box quite frequently. He had seven. Steel Chambers had seven. JT Tuimolo had, Moloow had seven tackles. Even Ty Hamilton, who is sort of a glorified, undersized nose tackle, had six tackles. And Mike Hall Jr., I've been sort of pining for him to make his presence known. He was pretty good yesterday. He had four tackles. There are some other guys we'll get to. But Chuck, do you think that this was a bad performance by Ohio State's defense? Do you think that it was actually pretty good? I tend to lean on or gravitate towards the opinion that they just got gassed. And when you're out on the field a ton, especially in the first half, you are going to start to wear down. And it's just natural they limited the big plays again for the most part. I'd give this like a B performance, but nothing lower. I saw. I thought that they were still okay, and they only allowed the 16 points. I, I don't disagree with you. I think it was fine, and I, I agree that the especially the defensive line had some moments where they were really tired. And I'm I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna say something that might be shocking. If these guys hadn't been playing 90% of the snaps up until this point, they might be a little fresher. The guys behind them might be a little more prepared to uh, help them in a game like this. And it might not have led to the fatigue that we saw. And it was, this is why we've been screaming from the top of the hill about getting these guys reps early in the season against teams that it doesn't matter. Because towards the end of the year, you're going to have scenarios like this. Guess what Michigan just noticed on film? 
why, they might have noticed it during the game too while they were there, but they're going to notice on film that if you keep running it down their throats, Ohio State is going to get a little bit tired during this game or during the game. So if we can successfully run it down their throats in the fourth quarter, we might have a chance to blow a game open. So that part of it is concerning. The other part is the injuries are starting to mount up in the secondary. Yeah. And they really can't, they, they are out of injury spots. They can't fill another spot with anybody that's played any meaningful snaps this year. So if they have another one, they're going to be playing somebody who has been uh, off the field the entire season. So that part of it is starting to be really concerning because they're running out of warm bodies. I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth because you're right, first and foremost. And with the way that Ohio State deploys its safeties, like just Lathan Ransom being out, changes the whole you know sort of scheme the whole mindset and that's just Lathan Ransom who like look I love Lathan Ransom uh good ball player sort of helps direct traffic and everything but like when he's off the field then you have to move Sonny Styles if you move Sonny Styles then you can't use him in this way and if you can't use him in this way you got to use Jordan Hancock in that way and it just again trickle down effect even though guys are versatile, they're best in A or B, right? Like that's how they succeed the most. So that is concerning. And I just don't get it, man. Like let's talk about the injuries a little bit more. Denzel Burke, you know, got banged up a couple weeks ago. I thought he'd be out longer than he was, but he comes back against um, Wisconsin, right? And plays well. And then he's out again. I understand that people can re-aggravate injuries. We don't know what his injury is or was. But guys don't just start missing football for undisclosed reasons. They do in Columbus, and I'm sure there's something like I'm sure there's something legitimate to it, but I said this to you. I think Ohio State's trying this load management thing that we see like in the NBA. I really do, where it's like, ah. If you're not 101%, we can do without you. We want you to be healthy for the Michigan game. But it gets sort of wonky when you pick and choose your spots for that. When you pick and choose when Denzel Burke is going to be in the lineup. Lathan Ransom, I'm going to assume, has a a longer-term injury, even if it's not long, long long-term. Um Omeka Ibuka, though, like they said he was ready for two weeks, but they just wanted to hold him out. Cade Stover was available yesterday, but they held him out. Guys are available or they're not, and you pick and choose your spots, but I think it's funny. Marvin Harrison Jr. has been playing with an ankle sprain the last two years. Granted, it healed and got better, and that happened again, and who knows the severity of it, but he's banged up. He's your Maserati. You're driving him. He's out there probably because you have to. Tommy Eichenberg got hurt yesterday, left the game, looked like a potential concussion. If you just saw sort of like his reaction, the way he walked off the field, then he had his arm on ice. He might be hurt, but he might be hurt and playing the damn game because he played with two broken hands last year. So I just don't understand the mix and match and the decisions that are made. And it becomes even more frustrating as a fan, as a supporter, and 
for whomever else, which we're not owed anything. I get that. But how come these guys can't stay healthy? I'm not willing to say that it's just this strength and conditioning guy or that, but like something weird is sort of going on. Unless everyone's soft, but I'm not willing to go that far. I think the part that to me is the most frustrating is they, like Brian Day says these guys are available and then the coaches decide not to play them. So is your training staff not doing the right thing? So you don't think he's good enough to go. The training staff cleared him. So if you don't trust their diagnosis, they all need fired. And if you think you know better, you probably need fired. Like what, what, where, why is there such a, a big disagreement between training staff and coaching staff that the coaches think they know better than the training staff? The training staff says the, the player's good to go. The player's good to go. So I don't understand what the thought process is. Training staff, you, know, you hear it all the time. Um, guys will play with an injury and they say, I played because they said I can't do any more damage. It, it is what it is. I'm playing with pain and it won't get any worse by me playing. Aren't they having the same conversations about Emeka Buka or Cade Stover or uh, Denzel Burke with the training staff? Hey, Denzel Burke's banged up again. He runs the risk. He's okay, but he runs the risk of it, of getting hurt. And if that's the case, why wouldn't you say that? The reason or not is because that's not the case. He would offer that up that, hey, we didn't want to run the risk of re-injury. They haven't said run the risk of re-injury one single time with any of these guys. So the disconnect between the actual football coaches and the training staff is a big, big problem with this team. It is a, it comes down to, I, and this is, there, there's a lack of discipline amongst some of the parts of this football program. This is one of them where either, uh, and, and this, you could, we, we could go on forever on the minus, uh, but this is when your CEO is the play caller, sometimes things fall between the cracks. And if you told me that this was one of the things falling between the cracks, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I just think like they're okay with load management. And so they're like, yeah, I know he's okay, but another week wouldn't hurt. It's sort of how I look at it. But there's, we both agree that there's something. Yeah, and if that if that's the case, that they lo- they're okay with load management, this program is in trouble. Because you cannot load manage in football. You cannot build a culture of a football team and build a program where guys continually churn because it's college and be okay with having soft players. You are developing players that are soft. And I'm not saying these guys are, but if you continue to allow Denzel Burke to take every other game off, at some point he is going to, he is a human being and he is going to develop tendencies that allows him to think it's okay for me to only play half the time. You're going to allow guys that come in that haven't earned anything to feel the same way. So this is a, if that's what they're truly doing, that is, that is big trouble for this program going forward as a way to build a tough 
winning football team. You don't win football games being soft. Even the teams that are quote-unquote finesse aren't soft. So, especially mentally. So, for that to be something that is even being considered is the biggest red flag of the weekend and not a good sign for the program going forward if it actually comes to fruition. The more we talk about it, I'm I'm almost talking myself out of it, though, because then I think about the guys that are out there every single week consistently. Like, if you watch a game and you just isolate the defensive line, for example, JT Tuimoloau and Jack Sawyer say what you want about their production, their ability, whatever, but like those guys are going through hell every single week and they are out there far too much for even our liking sometimes, right? Um, They suffer. They go through it all. And so I'm sort of talking myself out of it in real time and maybe it is just the disconnect where training staff says clear, coaching staff's like, yeah, we hear you, but another week couldn't hurt. I, I don't know what it is, but it's sort of a bummer. And now, with the injuries stacking up, I mean, Chuck, we're just sort of going on a tangent here. So let me, I'm going to sort of cut it off, but open it up with a question, too, or just sort of this will be our transitional phase. Tommy Eichenberg, Denzel Burke, Lathan Ransom. Who is, which of those three is the most important guy for Ohio State's defense, in your opinion? Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's Ransom, and it's because of what you said earlier. Having him healthy just unlocks so much flexibility that they don't have when they have to keep Styles and Proctor back. It, it opens up Styles to play some nickel. It opens up Hancock to go move outside. Whereas Burke getting or not being there, they just kind of plug in Matthews. And yes, he's not as good as Burke, but he's serviceable and he can handle that role. If Eichenberg wasn't there, they slot in Cody Simon to his spot. They keep Steele in the game. Steele's played better the last few weeks, and they don't have that drop-off. So Ransom getting healthy is key, especially with Proctor dinged towards the end of the game, too. Now you've got Hartford out there, and Hartford and Styles in the back end of that is is a, a worrisome conversation just because – it's a true freshman and a guy that's 18 years old. I know he's a sophomore, but he should be a freshman. And do you have both of those guys in the back end of the defense together and no real, um, like anything behind them? If something were to happen to them or they weren't to play well, that part is really um, concerning. And that's the part of the field that I feel like could be most successful susceptible during a Michigan game like it was last year. You're right, and here's how you know you're right. Jim Knowles has given us this answer. He's given us the answer to the test. His defense is a safety-driven defense. And so when you take out you know, the most experienced guy on this team in Jim Knowles' defense, because he played all of last year, yes, he's going to be the biggest piece of the puzzle. And that's funny because... I think Denzel Burke is the best player of those three. I think Tommy Eichenberg 
is the second best player and arguably the most consistent player. Lathan Ransom, I love the guy, but I would put him like third in the pecking order as far as maybe talent and consistency, but he's the most important guy. So that's sort of an odd conundrum. I just hope these guys get back healthy. Maybe you have three weeks for them to do so. Um, Michigan State just beat Nebraska, but you, you need those guys healthy, all of them. Otherwise, honestly, I think you dust off Jihad Carter. If Ransom is going to miss more time, well, he obviously he 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 was he took a part of pregame this week, so two more weeks he should be healthy since he got loose this week. Then he'll really get loose next week, and then he'll be in time for Michigan. Is the hope, I guess. That's how the training staff works, right? You got to you got a pregame three weeks in a row before you actually play in a game. Look, Syracuse had a good defense when Jihad Carter was there, and he was a really good, versatile piece. Hell, I don't care if he's got a shitty attitude. You get over it, and you put him out on the field if Lathan Ransom is out long-term because he's the only one that can probably replicate what Ransom does the closest. And that allows you to play Sonny Styles where you want to play him and use him the way that you want to, to use him. So... It, that's about it, but Chuck, I let's close with a conversation on specialty. I want it to be brief. We're 75 minutes into this thing. Parker Fleming does not deserve too much of our time. I have chosen to say very little about Ohio State's special teams and Parker Fleming because I think I'm sort of like Ryan Day in that I haven't cared. I'm like, oh, whatever. It's a small piece of the game, small part of the game. Parker Fleming, in my opinion, is a waste of a half a million dollars. Parker Fleming, in my opinion, brings nothing to the table. Parker Fleming, in my opinion, is a detriment to the overall success of this Ohio State football team and program. I don't know what he brings to the table. I don't know, nor do I care, if... He was not in the ear of Jesse Mirko yesterday for the fake punt. The thing about that fake punt, Jesse Mirko runs to the right when he practices or when he kicks the ball. He ran to the left on the fake punt. Like a freaking sixth grader could have diagnosed that just off the way that he was running, right? And if it's not 100% of the time, it's most of the time. But it doesn't matter. Ryan Day blamed that on a miscommunication. The only person who should be communicating or is responsible for said communication is Parker Fleming. Ohio State doesn't return kicks. They're okay on kick coverage, but it's a mistake or two every single week. There is no purpose or there's no incentive to have Parker Fleming as a full-time paid coach for the Ohio State football team, and I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. I'm over it. That is my piece. Get rid of the guy. And even if he's a wonderful person, good. He can go be a wonderful person else. You're absolutely right, but this all falls on day. This is his staff. He allows it. 
And he says, oh, it's a miscommunication. It can't happen. And shame on whoever asked that question and allowed that answer that did not follow up with what's your plans moving forward to alleviate that happening. Nobody in the media pushes Ryan Day at all. It just it it just pisses me off that nobody ever holds him accountable for shit that's not going right in this program. The special teams are a disaster, and nope, they ask the the softball question. He gives you the BS answer back. It's not acceptable. But nobody ever asks about the actual accountability, and it's ridiculous. Anyone, all of them, they're scared of Ryan Day or scared of losing their credential or whatever it may be, but it's it's ridiculous. And it's it's an indictment of his, his program that he allows this guy, period. End of story. He's the head coach. He allows this to be uh, an acceptable level of coaching, an acceptable level of execution, and it falls on him. And until he fixes it, it's his fault. Yeah, I am one of the bigger Ryan Day defenders out there. There's no defense for this. Um, and I've, I've bitten my tongue for a long time because first of all, who am I? Who are you? Right? Like we're, we're nobody in the grand scheme of things, but it doesn't take a certain level of football intelligence to figure out and notice that this is a big effing problem. And there's going to be a game at some point. If this guy continues to be in role with the responsibility he does or does not have, then it's going to cost Ohio state. Um, you can say special teams cost them the George. That's a kick, man. Like it is what it is. No, no Ruggles missed a kick. I I'm talking other things. There's probably a play in that game that I'm not remembering right now that cost Ohio State 10 yards. Guess what Noah Ruggles could have used another 10 yards. Like, that's all it takes sometimes to make a world of difference. And Parker Fleming only makes a negative difference. And that's really all there is to it. And so it sucks to end on sort of a sour note, but I'll bring it back with a little bit of humor. I think what Ohio State needs on Tuesday when Ryan Day holds his press conference is Tyler from Spartansburg, okay? Tyler from Spartansburg would ask, what the hell are you doing with Parker Fleming, right? Just like he called out Dabo, Fle- or, uh, Dabo Swinney, he would, Dabo Fleming. How about that for a Freudian slip, right? And so let's end it with that. Dabo Swinney is Parker Fleming. Parker Fleming is Dabo Swinney. And Ohio State media needs Tyler from Spartansburg in that media room asking the hard-hitting questions. But that's going to do it for Chuck and I. Not a great recap. Not a whole lot to talk about. It wasn't a great performance. But we're hoping that Ohio State bounces back. They've got Michigan State on the schedule next. It's going to be a nighttime banger in the shoe. Next Saturday, probably some alt-unis, so definitely looking forward to that. Chuck and I will be back with you on Wednesday with a preview of that, and we will also cover any news that comes down the pipe between now and then. So for Chuck Holmes, I am Josh Dooley. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the pod. Interact with us on social. We hope to hear from you, and until next time, go Bucks.